It is good to be back here at Thomas Aquinas College. Um, I think I spoke here in, in 2008 um, when the chapel was about half finished at the time. And the campus today is, is even more beautiful. It's a daily blessing, I would think, for you to be in these surroundings. When I got in last night, um, I was reminded of that simile from the end of book eight of the Iliad when Homer describes the Trojan campfires Remember um, Hector and the, and the Trojans are out on the plains in front of the Greek camp for the first time in the war. And Homer gives us this simile. As when in the sky the stars about the moon shining are seen in all their glory, when the air has fallen to stillness and all the high places of the hills are clear and the shoulders out jutting and the deep ravines as endless bright air spills from the heavens and all the stars are seen to make glad the heart of the shepherd. Since I've been teaching at Wyoming Catholic College, which also has its high places and its endless bright air, I've felt close to TAC on a daily basis because so many of my colleagues are on the, on the faculty and in the administration are your graduates. I don't know if this will mean anything to you students but to the faculty, I think it will. Peter Klasniewski, John Mortensen, Stan Grove, Jeremy Holmes, Michael Bowen, Kyle Washett, Joseph Suzaka, John Tonkowicz, Owen Sweeney. You know, you almost wonder if anybody else can qualify to, to be there. Um, they're all edifying men. And it's always interesting talking to them about the place of poetry in the curriculum. Earlier this week, when he heard I'd be speaking here, Stan Grove looked at me with the merry balefulness unique to him and said, you know, they take the Iliad very seriously at TAC. <laughs> well, so do I, as, as, Myth, as Miss Elizabeth Reyes knows. She is a student of Dr. Louise Cowan, who also took it very seriously indeed and whom the world lost early this week. So please keep her in your prayers. What I'm gonna be thinking about tonight is the singularity and uniqueness of the Iliad, the poem that Dr. Cowan made the first reading of every student at the University of Dallas when she and her husband transformed the curriculum there in the late 1950s. 300 years ago, the classicist Richard Bentley a man whom Jonathan Swift called the most deformed of all the moderns, <laughs> said that the Homeric epics were little more than, quote, a sequel of songs and rhapsodies to be sung for small earnings and good cheer at festivals and other days of merriment. The Iliad for the men, the Odyssey for the other sex. <laughs> <laughs> In Bentley's opinion, these loose songs were not collected together in the form of an epic poem till Pisistratus' time about 500 years after. Now, hardly anyone now entirely agrees with Bentley, but the Iliad still tends to be read as the record of a great oral tradition, an entire culture coming up with ever more refined and ever more understanding ways of telling stories that are important to it as Adam Nicholson recently put it. Like Gregory Nash, and like many other contemporary scholars, Nicholson condescends a little toward anyone who still uses the name of Homer 
as if he were a single author like Shakespeare or Dante. I think it's a mistake to think of Homer as a person, he says. Homer is an it, a tradition. Now, I don't profess to know who Homer was. What I do know is that the third or fourth time I read the Iliad, gradually getting rid of my preconceptions, I felt like Ishmael starting on his whaling voyage. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open. What I'm going to be arguing tonight requires, if not Homer, then Zeus, at least, a mind with a single overriding intention, a mind whose achievement is a poem of almost infinite amplitude within the finite limits of a single action. My reading of the, of the poem's unity is based on two adjustments to the usual understanding of the Trojan War. First, the root cause of the war is not the judgment of Paris and his subsequent theft of Helen from Menelaus, but rather the marriage of Thetis, a goddess to the mortal Peleus. This marriage takes place because Zeus himself has been warned not to marry her for reasons that we'll see in a few minutes. Helen's deepest importance arises from her role as a displaced Thetis, a beautiful cause of strife. Second, the end or purpose of the war itself is the everlasting glory of Achilles rather than the recovery of Helen. Achilles must have unprecedented glory because his immortal mother married his mortal father. When the poem begins, there's virtually no hint of the coming glory of Achilles. He hardly occupies an exceptional place even in the Achaean camp. In fact, Homer shows him being dishonored and sidelined, so to speak. The poem works by giving us a misleading impression and then making us revise it, as with the girl Crusaeus at the beginning of the poem. We first assume that her father has come to get her back after she was taken from him. I think that's just the way you instinctively read it. Right? He comes to ransom back his daughter you assume that, that she's been with him and the, and the Achaeans have taken her. But later in book one, Achilles reveals to Thetis that the girl was taken captive when the Achaeans sacked Thebe, the city of King Eetion. The prophet Calchas tells the Achaeans to take her back to her father in Crusae, a different town. Since she was in Eetion city, she must have been married to a man who was killed when the city fell. In book six, Andromache reveals more about Thebe when she tells Hector that Achilles sacked it. If you remember this, this, um, this exchange in book six, remember when Hector goes into the city because Helenos has told him to go in and get his mother and the other women to carry sacrifices up to Athena, you know, on the, on the high places of the city. And when, um, when Hector meets Andromache, they have that exchange, and Andromache tells him about um, what Achilles did to, to her city. Eetion was Andromache's father. Achilles kills him. She makes a special point of saying how much Achilles honored him in death, how he gave him the full rites of burial. He also killed her seven brothers all on the same day, and he brought her mother in captivity back to the ships of the Achaeans. Now somehow when we read this, 
um, we hear Andromache tell it. We have the impression that this raid when her mother was captured was long ago, but her mother must have been part of the same division of spoils that gave Crusaeus to Agamemnon, right? Uh, Crusaeus was the war prize to Agamemnon when they divided up the spoils at the be at, um, after the sack of Thebe. Achilles accepted ransoms for Andromache's mother, but Artemis of the Shining Arrows struck her down in the halls of her father, a detail which implies that Andromache's maternal grandfather ransomed his daughter. Now, all, this, all these details come out as we, as we read into the poem and we sort of read back into that initial scene. In the same way, old Crusades comes to ransom his daughter and take her back to his home, no doubt to arrange another marriage for her and save her from the humiliations of being a war prize. If Crusades is lovely and accomplished enough to make Agamemnon refuse ransom for her, then she was surely married to a man of high stature in Thebe. Probably, if we think about it, to one of Andromache's seven brothers, since they would have been the princes of the city. The whole episode shimmers with these anticipations and parallels to other circumstances in the poem, especially a later father who cares so much for his child that, like Crusades, he risks approaching the Achaean camp alone. But my point is that none of these matters can be absorbed in the first scene when Crusades is simply a beautiful cause of strife. The same lack of context holds true of Achilles. He seems to be a distinguished warrior among other distinguished warriors, more or less on the same level as Odysseus and Ajax. When the prophet Calchas announces that Agamemnon has to give back Crusades, the king insists that he'll take a woman from one of the other warriors, Odysseus or Ajax or Achilles himself. Incensed, Achilles accuses Agamemnon. You remember, this is when he calls him, uh, what is it, um, somebody with a deer's heart and a dog's eyes, you know, something like that. Um, he accuses Agamemnon of hanging back in the fighting but being foremost when it comes to the, to the prizes, whereupon Agamemnon rages that he'll take Achilles' war prize rather than be the only king without one. Now, Achilles, as you remember, refrains from killing Agamemnon, but only because Athena intervenes and tells him to wait. But still, at the beginning of the poem, when we're first being introduced to these characters, it looks like a quarrel between the overlord Agamemnon and a more or less insubordinate warrior, um, and they're quarreling over the distribution of honors. Now, this seems true at least until Achilles gives his parting speech. Holding the scepter, whose whole history is given, you remember, he makes a formal proclamation. And this shall be a great oath before you. Someday, longing for Achilles will come to the sons of the Achaeans, all of them. Then stricken at heart though you be, you will be able to do nothing when in their numbers before man-slaughtering Hector, they drop and die. And then you will eat out the heart within you in sorrow that you did no honor to the best of the Achaeans. Now, how can Achilles make such an oath? Who does he think he is? We begin to find out later in book one, 
after the heralds take Briseis, the outraged Achilles leaves his shelter and goes to the beach alone. Many times, stretching forth his hands, he called on his mother. Since my mother, you bore me to be a man with a short life. Therefore, Zeus of the loud thunder on Olympus should grant me honor at least. But now he has given me not even a little. Now the son of Atreus, powerful Agamemnon, has dishonored me since he has taken away my prize and keeps it. What does he mean that Zeus should grant him honor? As though Zeus were under an obligation to him. In the context, he can only mean his mother's marriage to Peleus. Thetis, a goddess, bore him to be a man with a short life. But why should his brief life incur an obligation on Zeus's part? Homer does not tell the story directly. He doesn't need to any more than Dante needs to tell the story of Christ in the Inferno. According to ancient tradition, both Zeus and Poseidon were contending for Thetis before they were warned away from her. In Pindar's version, the prophetic goddess Themis tells the rivals that Thetis' destiny is to have a son greater than his father. If she bears a child with either of these great Olympian rivals, but especially with Zeus, this son will have a weapon mightier than the trident or the thunderbolt. The whole order of the Olympian gods will be imperiled by his greater power. In order to forestall this cosmic overthrow, Themis says that they must marry Thetis to a mortal, Peleus, son of Iacos, a just and upright man. As Laura Slatkin puts it, had Themis not intervened, Thetis would have borne the son greater than his father, and the entire chain of succession in heaven would have continued. If you remember the, do y'all read the Theogony, Hesiod's Theogony? Well, it's the, you know, it's the story of the origin of the gods when Uranus is overthrown by Kronos, who is then overthrown by Zeus. And this whole succession would have continued had the son greater than Zeus been born. So as Slatkin puts it, Achilles would have been not the greatest of the heroes, but the ruler of the universe. The price of Zeus's hegemony is Achilles' death. Does Achilles himself understand what the son of Thetis might have been? I think he must. Why else would he say what he does? Since my mother, you bore me to be a man with a short life. Therefore, Zeus of the loud thunder on Olympus should grant me honor at least. The subjunctive in grammar expresses a contingent hypothetical or prospective event, something that could happen or might happen or might have happened but did not. The depth of Achilles' anger, his manus, right, this, this wrath, that's the first word in the poem, comes from the depths of what he might have been. Remember Marlon Brando's character in On the Waterfront, if you've seen that. He's thinking back over the boxing career that he, he could never have because his brother convinced him to take a fall in a fight. I could have had a... Well, he says, I could have had class, he says. 
I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Right? Or, or think of Willie Stark's dying words in Robert Ken Warren's All the King's Men. At the end of his life, after he's been shot by an assassin, he thinks back over his sort of career as a demagogue, his rise to power, his abuses, and he says, it might have all been different. This pristine might have been exists only in the imagination, and opposed to it is what actually happens. Achilles stands above in a subjunctive abyss. Great as he is, he has an almost infinite what if, a limitless might have been. He looks at what he is, and instead of seeing his life in terms of the gift of existence, as he will in the underworld of the Odyssey, remember that? I mean, it's such a, such a puzzle when, when Achilles says in the Odyssey, you know, I'd, I'd rather be a thrall to a man with, with, you know, very little property than be king over all the lordless, you know, all the um, lifeless dead. Um, so he can't see his life in terms of this gift of existence. Instead, he sees it in terms of deprivation or lack or denial. He sees everything in the light of an imaginable impossibility. Supposing instead of gratitude for your intelligence or your family, you resent not being more intelligent, <laughs> not being born into wealthier circumstances, not being better looking, not being more socially adept, not having been given more advantages, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, the indicative character of existence is swallowed up in this might have been that you've been denied. This abyss opens all the more when there is already some intimation within yourself of the possibility that's been denied. The more godlike Achilles is, the more he feels the deprivation of actual immortality. This feeling of the subjunctive flames up into manus as soon as Agamemnon publicly insults him. Instead of being born divine, he was born mortal. Instead of being the greatest of all the gods, he has to content himself with the limited possibilities open to him as a mortal hero. And now Agamemnon, this intolerable, haughty, lesser man, takes away even the little that he has. In his cry to his mother, Achilles shows that he understands the whole depth of what he is not, what he can never be, what has been withheld from him in the very fact of his birth. When he asks for honor, Achilles is not asking for prizes from the Achaeans, but for compensation from Zeus. Since what he is had to be made subject to death, Zeus owes him a compensatory honor to make up for the death that protects the Olympian regime. Zeus understands, I think, how much he owes Achilles. But Thetis, when she goes up to ask for, I mean, when Thetis goes up and makes the request for Achilles in book one, Thetis is careful not to mention the real debt. Um, she goes up and takes Zeus's knees, right, the posture of a suppliant. You see this over and over in the Iliad. When you take someone's knees and hold their chin, right, you're, you're asking um, in a position of, of uh, almost of a beggar. 
She goes and says, Fathers, as if ever before in word or action, I did you favor among the immortals. Now grant what I ask for. Now give honor to my son, short-lived beyond all other mortals, since even now the Lord of men, Agamemnon, dishonors him, who has taken away his prize and keeps it. Zeus of the councils, Lord of Olympus, now do him honor. So long put strength into the Trojans until the Achaeans give my son his rights and his honor is increased among them. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle uses Thetis' embassy to Zeus in his discussion with Megalosikia, greatness of soul. The great souled man does not like to be reminded of his debt. Right? You don't go and say, you owe me to the greatest of the gods. Right? Her tact keeps her from mentioning her most important service. But she tells Zeus that he can refuse her and let her know by how much she is the most dishonored of all the gods. Now, what could she mean by this? In what sense has she been so dishonored? In the stinging shame of being married to a mortal. I don't know if you've, if you've thought about how extraordinarily rare it is in the Greek world um, for a goddess or a god to actually be married to a mortal. I mean, there are all sorts of... <laughs> of liaisons, right, as you know from, from the many amours of Zeus, among others, but marriage between, you know, a mortal and an immortal is extraordinarily rare. I, don't, I can't think of another example, unless maybe it's um, Tithonus. I don't know if that's a marriage or not, but this is, this is an extraordinarily unusual thing. Um, she later tells Hephaestus when she goes to Olympus, to ask for Achilles' new armor. Remember this in Book 18. You know, this is when she goes up to get the armor and the new shield. Hephaestus, she says, is there among all the goddesses on Olympus one who in her heart has endured so many grim sorrows as the griefs Zeus, son of Kronos, has given me beyond others? Of all the other sisters of the sea, he gave me to a mortal, to Peleus, Iaco's son, and I had to endure a mortal marriage, though much against my will. In other words, her marriage was as forced as if she were a captive like Crusades. Zeus owes her everything because of this marriage, and he knows it, but he can repay her only indirectly through the honor he gives to her son, the one who perishes in his place. Honoring Achilles after Thetis makes her request in book one is the central problem for Zeus. And it's essentially a poetic problem. Poetic because it requires a very careful construction, both of events and the narration of events, to make the full import of Achilles' short life shine out through the circumstances of his actual being. Achilles has to appear most emphatically and indicatively as who he is. Yet he also has to have about him the mysterious subjunctive aura of the greatness he was denied. How can Zeus give sufficient compensation to this hero with a short life when the son of Thetis could have been the still greater God who overthrew him? How can he fulfill his promise to Thetis 
within the narrow limits of a few days in the ninth year of the war and turn the action into everlasting glory. After he nods to Thetis, he spends a sleepless night planning the first foundational phase of this plan. Both sides in their first experience of the war without Achilles. It's the first time in the war where he's been since, um, since it began nine years earlier when Achilles has actually been, been absent from the fighting. These books at the first, I'm thinking specifically about books two through seven, you know, that seem to have nothing to do with Achilles at all. What I want to argue is that they're all actually ordered as a kind of prepar preparation for his glory. At the beginning of book two, Agamemnon gets a false dream. Remember, Zeus sends him down that false dream whose promise is more or less that if Agamemnon rallies the troops and takes them into battle on this day, that he can capture Troy. And of course, Agamemnon thinks, you know, this, this would be superb. If he could do this on the first day of fighting without Achilles, what a vindication that could be, right, for him to be able to, to say this. Um, but instead, if you remember Agamemnon's strange attempt to rouse the troops, when he tells them, you know, Zeus has changed his mind, let's all go home. <laughs> and they all, they all bolt for the ships, uh, much to his dismay, I think. Um, what, it, what it reveals is a disorganized and dispirited army, which is used to relying on its best warrior and pretty uncertain of itself, you know, without his presence. On the first day of battle without Achilles, all these things that seem appropriate to the beginning of the war happen in quick succession. Remember the catalog of ships in book two. Doesn't that seem more appropriate for when they were first setting out, when they were leaving Aulis? right, before the war even began. Um, the, when uh, Priam and Helen go up on the walls and sort of survey, right, the, the um, great Achaean warriors and Priam is asking about various of them. Doesn't that seem like that might have happened in the first few days of the war instead of in the ninth year? It's strange. The duel between Paris and Menelaus to decide, you know, for whoever wins the duel will take Helen home and the war will be over. Wouldn't that have been a good idea when they first got there? The defensive wall built around the Achaean ships, sort of an oversight, wouldn't you think, nine years in? Um, but in the plan of Zeus, they all tell us something about Achilles. Now, I would be happy to admit that these are traditional materials. You know, these are things sort of from the oral tradition that get put into the poem, but where they're placed in the poem is what gives, the, you know, what gives it its great unity and, and I think emphasizes the place of Achilles that Zeus is preparing. Books three through seven show what the war looks like without this one man. Notice that in the catalog of ships, Homer enumerates all the kings and all their followings but he also carefully points out a number of times that Achilles is not fighting among them. Among the warriors, he says, Ajax is best next to Achilles. Among those who have horses, the best horses beyond, belong to Eumelus. Of course, Achilles has better horses. Right? It's sort of like this all the way through. 
um, the whole host of the Achaeans is subtly set over against this one best man whose absence more than overbalances the whole huge presence of the army as the action of the poem soon reveals. In book three, when the two armies confront each other for the first time since Achilles' withdrawal, this question of Helen as the purpose of the war immediately comes up. Paris and Menelaus, you remember, agree to the fight. Uh, both sides take solemn oaths, etc. The war is going to end without further bloodshed. But then Aphrodite spirits Paris out of the fighting. <laughs> you remember that scene? He's being dragged along by, the, by his um, helmet strap. And, and Aphrodite breaks it and then puts him right in the bedroom and calls Helen. It's just one of those <laughs> strange moments. But, um, and then Athena sort of goaded by Zeus, uh, goads Pandarus into shooting Menelaus. The war resumes, but now it's within the frame of Zeus's promise to Thetis, if you see what I mean. The whole thing has been addressed and its cause, that's been sort of put aside. Helen as its purpose has been effectively acknowledged and kind of sidelined. And it's not Helen now, but the honor of Achilles that is at stake, as we know from what Zeus has nodded his head to in book one. His absence from the fighting means that the Achaeans need to start filling in with substitutes. So when Diomedes shines in book five, remember he has his great Aristea, um, and Athena breathes courage into him. She even gives him the, the gift to see immortals, right, and recognize them. Um, Diomedes seems as good as a warrior as the missing Achilles. Early in the poem, we don't know any better, right? We've never seen Achilles fight. We've never seen the war before. We think this is, we think this is normal. That's what I mean in terms of the sort of misleading impression that, that we're given that, that then has to be later corrected. <coughs> um, one of the Trojans even says, you know, the Diomedes is just as good as Achilles ever was, et cetera. But if you look at what happens, you realize that his efforts great as they are, have very little effect. By the end of book seven, when this one day of battle ends, goes from book two to, to book seven, um, the idea that they could capture Troy without their greatest warrior has, has proved to be the most vapid of illusions. Um, not only are they no closer to taking Troy, but they are all shaken, right? There, there's thunder and lightning, there's a green fear that get, goes through the Achaeans. Um, they have that sort of useless duel that matches the one at the beginning of the day, right? Paris and Menelaus at the beginning of the day, and then um, Ajax and Hector fight at the end of the day with nothing much at stake, certainly not what was at stake at the beginning. Um, and after this, Nestor makes this suggestion that's immediately taken up by the other kings. Why don't we build a defensive wall around the Achaean ships? And if you remember how this happens, they, they go directly from burning the, the bodies of the dead who have, who have died that day. And as they're piling up the grave mound, they just kind of continue and build a wall so that it, it uh, protects all of the ships. Now, now, what does this mean? You see, what does it have to do with Achilles? It's sort of like the Spartans, right? Spartans never had a wall around Sparta. Why is that? That's because they were the Spartans, right? Well, 
Only now, in the absence of Achilles, is it necessary to have a defensive wall. As Achilles himself points out in Book 9, you never had a wall before, right? It takes a rethinking of all these events in light of the last third of the poem in order for the true shape of the Iliad to come to sight. By the way, once you see Achilles in the fighting late in the poem, you realize why nobody noticed the other Achaean, you know, in, the, in that view from the walls. Uh, as soon as Achilles enters the fighting at Book 20, you don't hear about an, another Achaean. It, all right, now why is that? You ask yourself, okay. Anyway, um, the true shape of the Iliad begins to come to sight here, I think. The events begin to take on a certain compelling cast. Everything that's happening happens for the sake of the one man for whom the war itself first came into being. Now, why am I making this extreme claim? It's because Achilles and the Trojan War both start with the marriage of Peleus and Thetis. The famous apple inscribed to the fairest, remember that? It's a story told in the Lost Cypria, according to Proclus' summary of it. This apple was thrown down when? At the wedding of Peleus and Thetis. Um, the judgment of Paris follows, right? The judgment among the, between the three goddesses, um, Aphrodite wins, Helen is the prize, and the war, right? The, the sort of human cause of the war is underway. What I want to suggest is that the war di that did not take place on the divine plan, the war in which the son of Thetis would have overthrown his father and rival, is displaced onto the human plan. And the role of Zeus is displaced and refracted into various mortal roles. Peleus is the bridegroom of Thetis, which Zeus wanted to be, and he's the father of the greater son. Paris is the lover of the married and hence forbidden Helen who brings disaster on his city as a marriage to Thetis would have brought destruction to Olympus. Priam is the king and father of the great city that will be destroyed as Olympus would have been. Agamemnon, like Paris, is analogous to the Zeus who would have brought disaster on the gods by not giving up the woman he desired. Hector is the great rival of the son of Thetis, as Zeus would have been, etc. All these things that would have happened that are kept from happening by the marriage of Peleus to Thetis take place in their own form on the mortal level with all kinds of displacements. The Trojan War exists for the revelation of the son of Thetis, the apocalypse, as it were, of Achilles. By the end of Book 8, the Achaeans had been driven back inside their newly made walls, and the walls themselves signify Achilles, if you see what I mean. They signify what it means for him to be absent. Everything that Achilles asked for in Book 1 has already been accomplished. But despite the offer of great prizes in Book 9, Achilles refuses to return to the fighting. No doubt out of his contempt for Agamemnon, his pride in seeing Zeus himself honor him. No doubt he succumbs to, to hubris. No doubt, too, he simply does not want to die 
now that the fact of his mortality has been put before him again, he can consider his two death days, the short life with everlasting glory or the long but undistinguished life. In fact, of course, as we see in book one, he's already chosen glory and compensation for his short life. The second phase of his absence, after his refusal to atone, is dense with combat around the Achaean Wall, which itself, as I've said, symbolizes the need for Achilles. The tide of battle has drawn back from Troy. Now, if you, if, I mean, what we begin to realize as we go through the poem is that the Trojans rarely came outside their walls while Achilles was fighting. You know, it's even mentioned that they hardly ever come past the Dardanian gates, etc. But the tide of battle has drawn back from Troy itself all the way to the Achaean camp and the ships themselves, like the exposed ocean bed and the withdrawing tide before a tsunami. Most of the major warriors of the Achaeans suffer injuries, one after another, until Hector, you remember, it's Agamemnon, Diomedes, Odysseus, Machaon the healer that, that Achilles sends Patroclus to check on, uh, Eurypylus, you know, whom uh, Patroclus uh, treats for his injury as he's going back toward the ships. In any case, um, all of these men have suffered injuries until Hector, who's directly supported by Zeus and Apollo, hurls the fire on the ship of Protesilaus. In early in book 16, which is the signal in the plan of Zeus for the final displacements and substitutions to begin. Diomedes, we could say, was the first substitute for Achilles. Then various warrior kings, then the lesser heroes. I mean, we're working our way down into Meriones and Idomeneus and those guys, right? When we get into books 12 and 13. Um, the army en masse, right? And now Patroclus literalizes the whole movement of substitution by appearing as Achilles himself. Now, in the fighting after Patroclus enters battle, remember, Zeus loses his own son Sarpedon. I'm, I'm just summarizing shamelessly here. Uh, and this, this isn't even, he doesn't even lose him to Achilles himself. This is Zeus's own son that he has to in effect, sacrifice, not to Achilles, but to Achilles' substitute. A sacrifice that makes him weep tears of blood. So potent is this necessity to honor the son of Thetis. It is no light thing, in other words, no light obligation, but a profound and wrenching thing that Zeus undertakes to honor this hero. After the death of Patroclus, and you remember that wonderful uh, book 17 when Menelaus and Ajax and a few others rise to the occasion of protecting the body of Patroclus, Hector, whom many of you love, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I admire Hector too, excuse me, but Hector's whole desire is to get the body of, of, of Patroclus and cut off his head and display it so he can sort of put it in the face of the, of the Achaeans. But Thetis, when she hears of the death of Patroclus, mourns not his death, but the death of Achilles. She and the other Nereids begin to mourn in the depths of the sea. Um, 
not for Patroclus, as I say, but for Achilles. And when she comes up from the sea to console her son, she speaks in a tone of bitter irony, as though she were welcoming him into the knowledge of Zeus that she already has from her experience of dishonor. These things are brought to accomplishment through Zeus in the way that you lifted your hands and prayed for, that all the sons of the Achaeans be pinned on their grounded vessels by reason of your loss and suffer things that are shameful. The dark providence of Zeus has given him what he asked for, but at an unbearable cost. Then sighing heavily, Achilles of the swift feet answered her, My mother, all these things the Olympian brought to accomplishment. But what pleasure is this to me, since my dear companion has perished? Patroclus, whom I love beyond all other companions, as well as my own life. I have lost him, and Hector, who killed him, has stripped away that gigantic armor, a wonder to look on, and splendid, which the gods gave Peleus, a glorious present, on that day, they drove you to the marriage bed of a mortal. Notice that in this moment, when he must accept his death at the cost of avenging Patroclus, Achilles reminds his mother of her greatest bitterness. That day, they, the Olympian gods, and all of them went to the wedding, as Hera will remind Apollo in Book 24. They drove her to the marriage bed of a mortal. On the next day, his new armor from Hephaestus, including the great shield, will be the first sign of Achilles' kleos aphthiton, his everlasting glory. But the old armor that directly signifies the wedding day of Peleus and Thetis now shines upon the body of his greatest substitute, Hector, whom he must now go forth to kill. It's hard to overstate the complete ease of Achilles when he re-enters the fighting. Through the middle of the poem, those long, dense, death-filled books in which army battles army and the similes are things like farmers arguing over a boundary line. Or you remember the widow measuring out bits of wool in her scales. It's, it's sort of that close. So hard one is any game. Through those books, nothing has been easy. Remember how difficult it is for Sarpedon to pull off that one piece of the wall and get, you know, get the, the Trojans started into the Achaean camp. But when Achilles emerges after his long absence, this is, <laughs> this is what I mean by the apocalypse of Achilles. The whole Trojan army streams, panicked, back toward Troy. And every other Achaean just seems to disappear. Achilles' rage is strangely pure. As elemental fire sweeps on in fury through the deep angles of drywood mountain and sets ablaze the depth of the timber and the blustering wind lashes the flame along, so Achilles swept everywhere with his spear like something more than a mortal. We get an intuition of that other unborn son of Thetis. He unmistakably wears the subjunctive aura 
of the great God he never became. Everything in the earlier books, such as the nine-year absence of a wall around the Italian camp, suddenly becomes immediately comprehensible. He kills so many Trojans, you remember that he dams the river with corpses, and in <laughs> one of those strange scenes that you have difficulty picturing, the river chasing Achilles around, right? Anyway, but, but is his real enemy Hector and the Trojans, or is it the very condition of being a man? He rages against those like himself in having mortal bodies, and the Trojans give him the excuse, the permission to do so. He kills without mercy and his contempt for what can be killed, as though in some sort of asymptotic curve he could approach the pure vertical of immortality by destroying whatever will die in any case. In his godlike wrath, he stands outside humanity, yet he knows he cannot escape death himself. Consider the confrontation with Lycaon and Hector, both sons of Priam, though unequal in their importance. I want to touch on these briefly before we come to the final reconciliation with Priam, and I want to underscore in each case the emphasis that Achilles places either explicitly or implicitly on the wedding of Peleus and Thetis. In book 21, Achilles encounters Lycaon when this son of Priam has just come up from the river. <laughs> um, Lycaon grasped his knees, hoping for some of the same mercies that he's experienced in the past when Achilles spared his life but sold him into slavery. Remember, Achilles is sort of does a double take when he sees him because it hasn't been that long ago that he sold him into Lesbos and now here's this, here he is again right in front of him. And it's sort of like he's um, come back from the dead or something like it. Lycaon pleads for his life by promising ransom from Priam. And Achilles' personal refusal, how else to put this, is one of the most chilling scenes in the Iliad. We've seen other instances of mercilessness as early as Book 6 when Agamemnon brutally murders Adrestos, this man who grasped the knees of, of Menelaus, and um, Agamemnon comes up and says, what are you giving him mercy for, and just you know, stabs him on the spot. But with Lycaon, there's a difference, because Achilles knows him. He makes Lycaon look up at him and take in who he is before he administers the coup de grace. Poor fool. No longer speak to me of ransom, nor argue it. When the time before Patroclus came to the day of his destiny, then it was the way of my heart's choice to be sparing of the Trojans, and many of them I took alive and disposed of them. Now there is not one who can escape death if the gods send him against my hands in front of Ilium, not one of all the Trojans, and beyond others the children of Priam, so, friend, you die also. Why all this clamor about? Patroclus also is dead, who was better by far than you are. Do you not see what a man I am? How huge, how splendid, 
and born of a great father, and the mother who bore me immortal. Yet even I have also my death and my strong destiny, and there shall be a dawn or an afternoon or a noontime when some man in the fighting will take the life from me also, either with a spear cast or an arrow flown from the bowstring. So he spoke, and in the other the knees and the inward heart went slack. He let go of the spear and sat back, spreading wide both hands. But Achilles, drawing his sharp sword, struck him beside the neck at the collarbone, and the double-edged sword plunged full length inside it. Achilles holds up to Lycaon the whole revelation of who he is. And yet, despite his great parents, in fact, because of his mortal father, he too faces death. The mere fact that he has to die negates anything Lycaon could possibly say. But something else begins to happen here when Lycaon sits back and spreads his hands as if offering himself in sacrifice. Achilles' destiny begins to include all who are mortal because all of them have also been denied immortality, just as he has. He is nearest to the gods in his sheer excellence, his vast superiority in strength and speed and ferocity, yet he too will die, just like Lycaon. It's a merciless logic for Lycaon himself, but on the other hand, all those who share with Achilles the destiny of death, including this almost sacrificial victim, begin subtly to participate in the glory of the mortal to whom Zeus himself owes honor. Lycaon's death prepares for the death of manslaughtering Hector, the final substitute for Achilles. Explicitly named in Achilles' original oath in Book One as the Trojan before whom the Achaeans would drop and die, he has unwittingly served as a kind of shadow Achilles by enacting what Achilles asked Zeus to give him, that is, for the Achaeans to, to be defeated until they're driven back to the ships and he's given his honor. The poem through Book 16 has shown Hector's sudden rise to preeminence in the days of Achilles' absence. His glory culminates in the death of Patroclus, who wears Achilles' armor. It's almost as though Hector's killed Achilles himself. You know, I mean, he seems to think he has. In Book 17, if you remember, he's, when he gets the armor that's been stripped from Patroclus, and Zeus sees him putting it on, and he says, oh, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> But, <laughs> but then he sort of fits it to the body of Hector um, because he's going to have a short life. Um, so he's putting on the armor himself, appearing as Achilles, literalizing, you see, the substitution that's sort of been implicit all along, thinking himself the equal of Achilles, as he disastrously tells Polydamas in Book 18, Polydamus is the very sensible Trojan who starts to emerge about halfway through the poem. Um, he's the one who interprets the bird sign when the 
eagle has the snake and the snake bites it. And he says, that means we're going to have to watch it because they're going to turn around and, and um, re-attack us, etc. But in book 18, after Achilles has that moment when he goes out beyond the walls and the ditch and Athena kindles that flame from his head and he shouts and she amplifies the shout and I think it's said that 12 of the Trojans die when their own horses and, and spears get tangled up in the sheer panic of it. Um, Polydamas wisely says, you know, Troy has these great walls. <laughs> it has these big gates, and they have these big beams that you can close the gates with. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we go there, you know? Um, but, but Hector, Hector can't hear him, right? He thinks he's as good as Achilles. He says, I, you know, who knows who's going to win if Achilles and I fight each other. But in, in book 22, his glory uh, sort of terribly, suddenly evaporates. He sees this man who drove the whole panicked army of the Trojans back inside the gates, now coming toward him like a baleful star. He breaks and runs. It's a terrible moment, right, to, to watch Hector, whom we admire, do this. Um, when Athena tricks him into stopping, and Hector faces him at last, after circling the walls of Troy three times, we see all these major themes of Zeus's plan sort of compacted and, and brought to a head. So what is Hector looking at when he confronts Achilles? This man like a god, huge, merciless, terrifying, covered with the blood of the slain, including his own, his own brothers, yet carrying on his body the immortal work of Hephaestus and protected by this great, beautiful shield. And what is Achilles looking at? Most immediately, the killer of Patroclus. But even here is the reminder of his parents and his birth as a mortal. Hector wears Achilles' own armor, the armor that he gave Patroclus to wear and that Hector has stripped from his body. This is the armor, as he reminded Thetis, that the gods gave Peleus on that day they drove her to the marriage bed of a mortal. Hector now wears in front of Achilles a reminder of the very day when the destiny of the son of Thetis was turned away from supreme power toward death, toward a dawn or an afternoon or a noontime, when some man in the fighting would take the life from him also, either with a spear cast or an arrow flung from the bowstring. Hector wears the very sign of the wedding day that led to the judgment of Paris and the human cause of the war just as it led to the mortal birth of the son of Thetis. Achilles is looking at the reason for his own death, not because his death will soon follow Hector's, but because this man appears as an almost taunting reminder of his mortal paternity. Achilles, looking at Hector, nods. I had a student point this out. Um, I had missed it, you know, all the readings. I just hadn't seen it. But, you know, Achilles nods as he's looking at Hector, and Homer describes the tassels of his helmet, and it, it directly echoes 
the nod of Zeus to Thetis, right, when his immortal locks sweep over his forehead and all of Olympus is shaken at the beginning of the poem. So it's a kind of, what, affirmation of, of what um, Zeus has, has set into motion. Uh, he accepts his death. I think we have to say that's what the nod um, partly intends, surely. But when Achilles kills Hector, and he examines him for the weak spot in the armor, you remember? Um, when he kills Hector, I think he's reaching through Hector towards some unreachable cause, you know, that, that Hector is, is the sort of reachable version of. I think of Moby Dick, you know, um, Captain Ahab says, be the white whale agent or be he principal, you know, I'll, I'll strike, uh, I, I have to strike through the mask. Um, but what are we going to say now about that cause, the cause of Achilles' death? The first line of the poem says, Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus, son of Peleus. The wrath, the manus, arising precisely from being Peleus' son. Doesn't the confrontation with Hector, who wears the armor of Peleus, suggest that his greatest enemy is his own father, the man who begot him, the source of his mortality, so that killing Hector is a kind of patricide. Well, yes and no. Nowhere does Achilles speak ill of his father. Though he does say in Book 18, just after he tells his mother about the lost armor, I wish you had gone on living then with the other goddesses of the sea and that Peleus had married some mortal woman. In other words, he wishes that he had never been begotten at all if he had to be born mor mortal and cause his mother the pain that he imagines she's going to feel, the immortal mother who loses a son and who never, never gets over it. Peleus makes him mortal. His whole manus stems from the death imposed upon him by his conception. Yet when Priam comes to ransom the body of Hector in Book 24, a scene that parallels and amplifies Crusade's attempt to ransom his daughter at the beginning of the epic, the old man kisses his hand and appeals directly to Achilles' memory of Peleus. Achilles, like the gods, remember your father, one who is of years like mine and on the doorsill of sorrowful old age. And they who dwell nearby encompass him and afflict him, nor is there any to defend him against the wrath, the destruction. Yet surely he, when he hears of you and that you are still living, is gladdened within his heart. And all his days he is hopeful that he will see his beloved son come home from the Troad. Now Achilles knows that he will never go home from the Troad, but Priam brings before him the living image of Peleus and his suffering. Think what it takes for Priam. I mean, just think what it takes. I mean, first of all, as he points out, you know, he's done what no other mortal has done. He's kissed the hands of the man who has killed his children. But when he goes in there and imagines what Peleus must feel for his son, Achilles, this is, this is a, a 
a supreme act of imagination, I think. Um, he understands that Peleus loves his son Achilles, this man who's killed Priam's own children. Priam takes Achilles inside his suffering and his longing. He makes Achilles understand Hector in a new way, in terms of what a father feels for his son. The gladness that his son is still living, the hope that he'll return, and the mourning that will look like Priam's when Achilles does not return. Peleus is old, as Priam is old. He feels what Priam feels. And not only will he never see his son come home, but he will never be able even to mourn his body. And at last, before this image of his own father as a suppliant, Achilles relents in his most beautiful gesture of generosity and forgiveness. He gives Priam Hector's divinely protected, incorrupt body, whose meanings now from all the borders of itself burst like a star, as Rilke says of the archaic torso of Apollo. At the very least, we can say that Achilles, in this displaced way, honors the mortal father who gave him being. And he allows Priam the full ritual of mourning as though he were Peleus. He finds a beauty within the shining boundaries of actual human life over against the dark subjunctive abyss of his denied godhood. There's no greater moment of this beauty than when Achilles and Priam, giving up the fasting of their grief, sit down and eat together. But when they had put aside their desire for eating and drinking, Priam, son of Dardanus, gazed upon Achilles, wondering at his size and beauty, for he seemed like an outright vision of gods. Achilles, in turn, gazed on Dardanian Priam and wondered as he saw his brave looks and listen to him talking. This is one of those images I almost don't want to say anything about. This mutual setting aside of personal hatred and simply beholding, simply experiencing wonder. Nothing like this moment could happen without the greatest extremes of passion and grief. Priam, who has suffered loss after loss from this man, and who anticipates the certain destruction of his city, gives us the final vision of Achilles, which could probably best be described by a phrase from Jacques Maritain, ontological splendor. To whom could Achilles have given more cause for hatred? And yet Priam is stilled in wonder. For his part, gazing and wondering at this man of brave looks, Achilles moves outside himself and what might have been due to him and simply loves his father. He lets Hector be Hector. He allows the poem that ensures his own everlasting glory, the poem that is itself the purpose of the war, to end not with his own death, but with the funeral of Hector, breaker of horses who is both his greatest enemy and the final image of his own humanity. The truth of poetry in the case of Achilles has to do with Zeus's artfully and self-sacrificially bringing to light the glory 
of the son of Thetis, so much so that in this, in, the, in this beauty and pathos, it no longer matters who would have had the most powerful destiny of all. For all its limitations in time and action, the Iliad is boundless within its limits as one begins to perceive its echoes and displacements. If the price of Zeus's hegemony is Achilles' death, then the Iliad as a whole, the epic that actually is Achilles' everlasting glory, coalesces as a divine compensation for his mortality and the reason for the war that was conceived with his own conception. The poem is one thing, one finite thing, and yet a single lifetime does not feel sufficient to explore in full its inexhaustible meaning and complexity. Thank you.